Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne this morning, our Lord, to praise you and worship you through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and also our Savior. He is the one who fulfilled all the terms of the covenant of grace, that when he was done on the cross, he said it's finished, and it was indeed finished. The work of setting the prisoners free, we who were in the prison of sin and death and under the power of the evil one, doing his bidding. And now, Lord, we have been slaved. We've been saved to righteousness. We are now slaves of righteousness, slaves of Christ. And Lord, as we go into word this morning, we ask that you would give us the understanding that you would have of us to know about Christ, about who he is and what he has done for his people. And also in the process to know who we are because of him. And Lord, I pray for your spirit, your Holy Spirit, who is the revealer of all secrets, that he may reveal the things that are in our hearts to see if they are in accordance to, with the things of Christ and to reveal the things of Christ to us, and to work and remove the darkness that may still be in our hearts, that only the light of Christ may shine and brightly. Lord, we thank you for what you recorded for us here in the book of John, and we ask for your blessing, spiritual ears of those who shall hear, even beyond this day, that as they begin to listen, Lord, that you may open their eyes, that they may hear what says the Spirit of God. Our Lord, we pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we had the blessing of Elder Tillman showing up by the Lord's appoint, appointment. That was a huge blessing for us because in my understanding, it's just the Lord saying, I know that you're there and I am bringing someone that you may be reminded of that and keep doing what you're doing. I have people in this city and in due time, he will bring them. I'm thankful for Elder Tillman, he is one of ours. He preaches and believes in the same gospel. And it's good that you also know that we are not alone, that the Lord has raised other people who are teaching this very same gospel of God's sovereign grace. And if the Lord wills, it's my prayer that Elder Tillman will come and share with us the gospel, according to how the Lord will give it to him, 
And it will be a blessing for us and a blessing for him too. So let us be praying for that. But it was indeed a wonderful blessing for Barry and Sovereign Grace. And that being said, we are back in the book of John. We are in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and we are going to be working our way through verses 1 to 12, even though the majority of the teaching is going to just be John 1 to 11. Uh, sorry, John 2 verses 1 to 11. And I have titled this sermon, My Hour Has Not Yet Come, even though there's just way so much to say that I could have 10 titles. But let's go to John chapter 2 and hear what Apostle John recorded for us. And this is what he says. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine, but we have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there. A few days. At the beginning of John 1, Apostle John has recorded this for us. In John 1, verse, verses 1 to 3, John has told us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. John wants us to understand the connection between Genesis 1 to Genesis 3 and Jesus. He has in John 1 verses 1 to 5 brought forward the themes that are found in Genesis 1. And says, in the beginning, he has talked about creation. He has talked about life 
light, and darkness, that he may tell us of the person and work of Jesus as the mediator of all things. Jesus Christ is the eternal logos of God. That means he is the word of God that has tabernacled or clothed itself with human flesh. And it was through the agents and the power of that logos that all things came into being. That is of the old creation. Because we have an old creation and we have a new creation. So John wants us to know that whatever happened in the old creation, that happened by the power of the Logos. And similarly, in the new creation, all the work is happening by the power of the same Logos. John does not tell us about the fall of Adam. However, he assumes the knowledge in his darkness theme. Because when he talks about darkness, he is talking about sin. So he assumes the knowledge of the fall of Adam by the darkness theme. So spiritual darkness came to all men or all humanity after the first Adam of the first creation had sinned. And the Logos, who is the second Adam, comes to a world that is not good. He comes to a world that is not good in contrast to the world that was in the old creation. When the Lord was creating things in the old, he said, and everything was good. But the second Adam, when he comes, he comes to a world that is marked by darkness and this meaning spiritual darkness. And it's infested with sin and the effects of sin. It is a world of spiritual immorality, sickness and death, as we see with the miracles. And most importantly, it's a world full of unbelief. It's a world full of unbelief. Sin came to the world through the unbelief of the first parents. And if sin then is to be removed, it has to be removed through faith. It has to be removed through faith. Faith has to be restored back to the ones who sinned. So this one who comes, comes that all humanity may believe on him again and be restored to God. You get restored back to God by belief in the one that God has sent. And so he says in John 8:24, Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So this is what John is teaching us. He's teaching us that the biggest problem that we have as the fallen world is that we do not have faith in God. And you see right from the beginning and all the way to the end, one of John's constant theme 
is that we have to believe. So the fall of Adam is the reason why the logos has been revealed. The fall of Adam is the reason why the logos shows up on earth in the way that he did. He has come to give light and life to those who dwell in darkness, which the fallen Adam could not give them. The fall of man is such a disaster that it cannot be repaired with just human hands. It cannot be repaired with human resources, human will, or effort. The fall of man is such a spiritual death that requires the omnipotent power of God working through the power of the Logos to resurrect and restore it. It requires one who can reach both heaven and earth, one who is both God and man, one who is the ladder upon which those who believe shall ascend on so as to make it to heaven. So man's problem then is that they do not have a ladder to get to heaven. Sinners have a ladder problem, Sister Becca. Sinners have a ladder problem. All our ladders to climb to heaven are too short. They can't reach heaven. The ladders that men may construct, tall as they may be, they cannot reach heaven. You need one who is the son of God. The one that Jacob saw, this is the one who can have you reach heaven. Now, John wants us to know that darkness can only be removed by a work of a new creation. And a creation that requires one who is light and life in himself. And one who has the power of divine command. You need one who has the power of divine command. Why? Because sin and death are beyond the power of those born in darkness to remove by themselves. It is beyond their will. It is beyond their own power of command or ability. In Genesis 1, God created not by assembling angels in a workshop, with power tools and machines and nails and drywall. Rather, he spoke and he said, let there be light. And there was light. He created all things by command of his power. And Apostle John seeks now to show proof to support his introduction of Jesus. And he seeks to prove that if this one is God, He also has to do the works of God. And the son, you hear the son saying, 
I do whatever my father does. I do whatever I see my father doing. That's what I do. And if God created all things by power of commandment, this one, if he is God, has to be able to do the same thing. God created by his own will. His independent will. And so if this one, if he is God also, cannot be coerced or persuaded by anyone to do what he has not determined to do. He creates or recreates only because he wills. As the sovereign God wills. He does not submit to his creatures, to his creatures, sorry. He does not submit to his creatures. And his creatures have to understand that if they are to avoid trouble with him. And we shall see this in the book of John in this very chapter. But to build some background, a little bit of background, we have to go to Exodus chapter 7. We have to go to Exodus chapter 7 to build some background and understanding to the water to wine sign, as John calls it in John 2. Exodus 7 verses 17 to 21. And this is the miracle of Moses and Aaron in Egypt. This is what he says. Verse 17. Thus says the Lord... By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the stuff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. The fish that are in the Nile will die, and the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your stuff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, over their streams, and over their pools, and over all their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood, and there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Listen to that. Both in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded, and he lifted he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. Verse 21. The fish that were in the Nile died and the Nile became foul so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile and the blood was through all the land of Egypt. Apostle John has introduced Moses. And there's a purpose of introducing Moses. He has a lot of overlaid teaching. He has a lot of Old Testament references that are inferred in his teaching. He has told us that the law came through Moses. But grace and Truth came through Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is, Jesus Christ is superior to Moses. And if Jesus is superior to Moses, 
then the miracles of Jesus too have to be superior. So, from Exodus 7, we had the first miracle of Moses. A plague of water into blood. Turning water into blood. The water becomes foul. Even all the water that was in their vessels of wood and vessels of stone. These are big water pots. Not only was the water that was in the Nile River fouled, but also whatever water they had in their water pots in the different places was turned into blood. So the water became undrinkable. The water could not sustain life anymore. Hence, the fish, and I'm sure all the other living aquatic animals in there, also died. The water becomes undrinkable. It cannot give life. And this is judgment, not life. But this Christ, when he comes, he comes and brings a different kind of water. It is a water that springs to eternal life. It's a different kind of water that the Christ brings. He brings water even wine that keeps the party going. But we need to understand the theology of what's going on. The first miracle of Moses and Aaron as mediators of the law and the Levitical priesthood. The law was given to Moses and the priesthood was in the line of Aaron. Moses and Aaron were both Levites. Both they were brothers. But the priesthood tended to be more associated with Aaron than with Moses. So we have here in Moses and Aaron the representatives of the law and the Levitical priesthood. And in their first miracle, they do not bring blessedness. Rather, they bring judgment and cursedness. So the law does not bring blessing, but judgment to everyone who is a sinner. Because look at the ones who are the representatives of the law. They do not bring a blessing to you. They can only bring judgment. And if they do bring water, they bring water that turns into blood. The law cannot bring life. It can only kill. Life can only be given in the death of a perfect sacrifice. Which sacrifice the law did not have. The law did not have a perfect sacrifice. God had to bring a sacrifice of his own, his own son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But here, Jesus' first miracle. Jesus turns water into wine. Jesus does not have a laboratory or a distillery 
where he is brewing beer and distilling it. He demonstrates and displays his power and glory as God in keeping with what John the Baptist has said about him. And in keeping with what John the Apostle has said about Christ. So he turns water into wine. But John does not tell us what command Jesus gave. What command did Jesus invoke to turn the water into wine? John does not tell us. But whatever happened, we know that it happened instantaneously. Because as soon as the water pots were filled, the Lord gives a command and, water, and wine is already being drawn out. It did not take a whole week or two weeks or three months of fermentation. It, right, it happened right there. And we know it happened at the command of the Lord. It is not just that Jesus had the power to convert water to wine. Very important theology. It is not just that Jesus had the power to convert water to wine or command water to turn to wine. But we have to look at things from the water side. The water also recognized the command of its master. And the water has to oblige by the command of its master. It hears what the master says. The water obeyed the command of him who rules over it. And remember what the Lord said to the Jews in Luke 19 verse 40. The triumphal entry, the Lord is getting ready to get into Jerusalem. And the Jews come to him and say, Silence your people, your disciples, they're making too much noise. And the Lord says to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Even the stones know who Jesus Christ is. Both the rocks and the water, the seas and the wind, they know him. Because as soon as he commands them, like puppies, they go quiet. They know who Christ is. Because he is the one who created them. So it is he, Jesus, who brings the new creation. A new birth to those who are born according to the will and power of God. And when he speaks to them, in their deadness, they come to life. They know his voice. And Apostle John will tell us that my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. It's in keeping with this water into wine teaching. If water obeys and turns to wine, then you have to obey and turn to whatever the Lord would have you tend to. If the water obeys and turns into wine, those that he calls to life shall come and believe in him. There is no other way. There is no other way. So he says to Lazarus, Lazarus come forth. And Lazarus heard the voice of his master And he had no option 
but to come forth. He did not say, but I can't because I am dead. He has to come because him who is the life and the resurrection has spoken. And you too had to come to the Lord this way because he spoke. And if he says you are coming, his power cannot be resisted. The water in the water pot did not say, no, I can't be wine because there's no yeast in here. It did not say, I can't be wine because there are no grapes or grape juice in here to ferment. It did not say, it is going to take a few weeks, Jesus, before good wine can be made. When he spoke the wine, the water had to comply. Water to wine. And even the head waiter would come to the bridegroom and say, you are amazing. A lot of folks will be serving some really bad stuff by now, but you've been keeping the party going with some good stuff. So this miracle is said to tell us that Jesus is God by the way that he commands things. But also it is to tell us his mission. It is to tell us about his mission and his mission is a new creation. Why water into wine and not water into orange juice? Why water into wine? Water can easily be fouled by gems. But wine preserves. Wine preserves. Listen to this. Wine resists or slows down the growth of bacteria that fouls the wine. And if this is a new creation, it has to be pictured as a new creation that cannot be fouled. Unlike the old creation. The old creation was fouled, but this new creation has to be pictured in terms of the wine that preserves. So, Apostle John will record for us the Lord Jesus talking about the life that he gives is eternal life. And that this life cannot be lost. And the light that he brings is a light that cannot be put out. It cannot be extinguished. And those that he says, he says, of those that my father has given me, I shall lose nothing. And I will raise them at the last day. Why? Because he is the good shepherd. All this is preservation language. Water into wine is preservation language. And we hear now John expanding on the preservation language in the book of John. So the water of Jewish purification was Moses' water. That was Moses' water. It's not good to remove the fouling that has happened because of sin. A new type of cleansing has to happen. But this type of cleansing has to offer more. It's a cleansing that also preserves what has been cleaned. So the Lord Jesus Christ will say, you are clean on account of my word. But there's more. 
there's more to this understanding. John 2, verses 1 to 3. John 2, verse 1 to 3. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. By the way, everything that I said prior to this was just introduction. Was just introduction. Now we actually go to the text. You read these things and you never see them. But they are there. John says in verse 1 of chapter 2, On the third day, what third day? Why the third day? This is what John is teaching us. If you go to John 1 verses 19 to 28, there begins John's first day. This is the day that John the Baptist was answering the delegation from the priests and the Levites. That was day number one. And the second day was in John 1 verse 28. When John saw the Lord coming to him. That's day number two. And the third day is in John 1.35. John 1.35 is the third day. John sees Jesus and he tells his disciples to follow him. And the fourth day, John 1.43, Jesus calls Philip. Jesus calls Philip in John 1.43. And then in John 2.1, John says, On the third day from the last day, on the third day from the last day, which makes it what? The seventh day. So John is building seven days in keeping with his introduction of Genesis the creation. He's building his seven days. And the seven days are reached completion and Christ does the work of a new creation. So you have your seven. And that's John's style. That's John's style. Very masterful. So there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And who was present? We are told the mother of Jesus was present, but she is not mentioned by name. A name is not there. John does not mention a name. And also present were Jesus' brothers, the Lord himself, and his disciples. Not the twelve. It's not the twelve yet. But this is just three days after Philip, Nathaniel, and these other guys have come to him. So he only at this time has Andrew, Simon Peter, Nathaniel, Philip, and most likely John, because the way that John is telling us his account, it sounds like an eyewitness. It sounds like he was among them. So what can we glean from this? It was a wedding of a family that the family of Jesus was acquainted with. 
or related to. And that is why Mary and her sons were there. Mary had been invited and so she brought her whole family with her. And other than being taught in John 1.45 by Philip that Jesus is the son of Joseph, Joseph seems not to have been in the picture. Joseph is not in the picture. And I think this is in keeping with what Apostle John wants us to know about Christ. He wants us to know that Christ is more than the son of Joseph. Apostle John is developing the understanding that this one who is the son of Mary is the son of God. Or he is the son of man. And John, instead of working on to try and prove the humanity of Christ, he uses other means to prove the full humanity of Jesus. So Mary had been there in a special way that the running out of wine would have been an immediate concern to her. There were a number of people there. She had to be related to this family in a special way that the running out of wine would have been something of concern. So she wanted to save this dear family from embarrassment and probably hers too. So this was most likely the first Christian wedding as the Lord was there. But we see that just as in the old creation, now this is masterful, just as in the old creation where God instituted marriage between a man and a woman in Genesis 2.24, we see him also in the beginning of yet another creation endorsing the marriage between a man and a woman. He's right there. This is a Genesis theme that is being repeated in a different way. So why would the Lord be interested in a miracle that happens at a wedding? Why would these are the kind of questions that we ask when we are studying theology? And and when you start asking these questions, you just end up with so much stuff. <laughs> But, but this is how you have to think about these things. Why did John not have, or why did the Lord appoint that this would be the first miracle and not any other miracle? Why not the man born blind being the first miracle here? Why this interest? He too is a bridegroom of his church. He is the bridegroom of the church. And you're going to hear John recording that for us. So marriage is a type of the marriage of Christ to the church. That's why the Lord is there. So in verse 3, he says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. So we have a problem, and they had a huge problem. The wedding ran out of wine. And the Lord and his entourage could not have been there for more than a day. They could not have been there for more than a day. To understand how 
important this was. You have to know that weddings in these times did, didn't go half a day. They went for at least a week. The weddings went for at least a week. And it seems that this wedding is already in trouble at the very beginning. And they did not have, unlike us, soda machines that dispensed Mountain Dew, Pepsi, frozen slushes to keep people high on sugar. And there was no Budweiser distillery anywhere close by. It was either wine or water. And so you could not just run out of wine. And given the process of making wine, it's not something that you can just whip up and have it ready on the same day. They are in serious trouble. But I also think that this family seems to have run out of wine, not because they invited too many people. There are people who say they ran out of wine because they had way too many people. It's true, and it's most likely that they had a lot of people there. But I don't think that the main reason why they ran out of wine, that they had just way too many people and too many heavy drinkers. I think that there were a lot of people there. Given that there were six water pots of water purification, of Jewish purification, and these water pots, we are told, were about 20 to 24 gallons each, and were empty. And the water that was in there was not for taking a bath, but it was just for ritual purification, the washing of hands and feet. So as people are coming in, they're having their hands washed. And to go through six water pots that each contain 20 to 24 gallons of water, that's a lot of washing. Having said that, I think the family ran out of wine because they were a poor family. They were a poor family and they just did not have the resources to buy that much wine for the people that they had. But this is just humanly speaking. I'm going to tie it to another level. But understand this also. That the bridegroom had the responsibility of making sure that the party was well supplied. And they actually risked being sued by the in-laws for organizing a cheap and embarrassing wedding. So the stakes are very high here because there may be a lawsuit coming because they did not have a proper wedding that was honoring to their bride. And so Mary, as an insider, has gotten word that they are running out of wine, or basically they actually are out of wine. And I, I do not think that Mary drank wine. 
for this reason. If this culture is anything close to mine, she would not be drinking wine at the age. The Lord Jesus Christ is about 30 years old. He has just started his ministry. He's 30 years old. And she had him when she was a young virgin, about 16 years to maybe at the very most early 20s, no more than 22. So I'm thinking at this point she is in a mid-40s to early 50s. And women that young would not be drinking to get intoxicated in this kind of culture. It's only the very elderly women who had already raised all their children who are in their 70s or older who would drink beer or get intoxicated. That's at least what happens in my old culture. So I don't think Mary has news of the wine because she too was looking for wine to drink. She knows about the wine situation because of her relationship to the family. But this is what some people say about why Mary would have come with the concern that they were running out of wine. They say, since Jesus was the firstborn, he had the responsibility of providing for the family. And it looks like from the book of John that at this time, Joseph is out of the picture. Joseph is out of the picture, so he most likely has died. Joseph is out of the picture, he has died. So the responsibility of providing the family is now on Jesus' shoulders. So he, she goes to her firstborn son and says, Son, can you do something about the situation? Just as you have provided for the family in other situations. And if that is true, here is my theological speculation. Jesus is the son of God. And John wants us to know that he is ultimately the son of God and not the son of Joseph. And so God has removed Joseph from the picture by death. Just as he removed John the Baptist by death through Herod. That's sovereignty. A God like that is not being had in a lot of churches. However, I think there's something more that is happening. I think it's way much more than what other people say of what may ha have happened here. This is what I think. And this is what the scriptures say. Mary sees that the situation is not looking good and it needs to be rescued. Mary knows more about Jesus than anybody. The angel Gabriel had told her this about Jesus in Luke 1, verses 31 to 33. The angel said to Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Listen to this. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. 
This was said to Mary. But also from Luke 2, verses 25 to 33, this is what we learn about what was said to Mary also. Verse 25 to 33, from Luke 2. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it happened, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit in the temple, and when the parents brought in the, the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bond servant to depart in peace according to your word. For my, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. So what is that saying? It is saying that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel and Mary knows it. And she has known it since Jesus was born. She has known it for 30 years now to this date. Mary knows that Jesus is a special person. Even though at this point Jesus had not performed any miracles, Mary has had many things from highly repeatable sources. So this, I think, is the reason why she comes to him. But how do we know that he had not performed any miracles beforehand? Because there's a legend that goes out, that is out there that said Jesus, when he was two years old, he made a dove from mud and then he breathed life into it and it just came into being. Jesus had not performed any miracles before then. But how do you know that? In the book of John, we are presented a Jesus who is working on schedule. We have a Jesus who is on divine appointment and timetable. And with a ministry that had just started as we heard from John the Baptist, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Jesus cannot start doing miracles before John the, Baptist, John the Baptist has shown up. So he talks continually about his time not being yet, which means everything that he was doing was according to God's appointed time. The Lord Jesus Christ was not like Simon Magus, that magician in the book of Acts, who was just mesmerizing people with his magic tricks. Jesus came for serious business, and he was going and working on a set timetable. So, Mary had a better understanding of the person of Jesus. And it was by this understanding that she was prompted to come to Jesus and tell him that they had no wine. So she was saying basically that they have no wine and I know who you are and so do something about it to save them 
and ask from embarrassment. Now, that opens up a can of worms. That opens up the Roman Catholics. Because they will come to this verse and argue that Mary is also our savior. And Mary is also our mediator. And the teaching of that is called co-redemptrix and mediatrix. Co-redemptrix and mediatrix. This is what it means. Co-redemptrix refers to the Roman Catholic theological teaching that has Mary, the mother of Jesus, as taking part in the redemption of man. It refers, according to them, to her subordinate, but essential participation. It's subordinate, but it's essential. Participation by the Blessed Virgin Mary in redemption. And this is where they say she was involved in the redemption of men. In that she gave free consent to give life to the Redeemer. That she agreed to what God said for her to do. That she will be the vessel through which the Messiah was going to be born. And not only that, to share in his life and to suffer with him under the cross. And they picture her under the cross as offering God's sacrifice back to God for the sake of redemption of mankind. So their teaching is this. They also go to look to Verse 35. Look to verse 35 where he says, uh, this is the prophecy by Simeon that we just read. But this is the other part of the prophecy. Indeed, as a result of him, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul as well. So they are saying that as Christ is dying, the picture the prophecy here by Simeon is saying Mary was also pierced on our behalf. And of course that's not true. But also related to that is the concept that she is a mediator between men and Jesus. So that's the mediatrix. It's just coming from mediator. A mediator between men and Jesus. So much that John Paul II said that because of her position, Mary is the natural path to Jesus. She is the only natural path to Jesus. And this reliance, this reliance on the intercession of Mary is based on what is called the Montfortian formula. Montfort was some Roman Catholic guy who came up with this formula in working out his theology and meditation on the person and work of Mary. 
That's what he says. To do all our actions by Mary. With Mary. In Mary. And for Mary. So that we may do them all the more perfectly by Jesus. With Jesus. In Jesus. And for Jesus. And in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, it reads, Taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside this serving office. So, according to Roman Catholic theology, Mary actually possesses a serving office. But her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. So the, the gifts of eternal salvation that the Lord has bestowed on the church are not coming from the intercession of Christ and the bestowal of the Holy Spirit on God's people. Rather, according to them, they are coming because of the intercession that Mary continues to do in heaven. So, the Blessed Virgin Mary is involved in the church, in the Roman Catholic Church, under the titles of advocate. Christ is our advocate. But they say she is our advocate, first and foremost. She is our helper. You see, this is language for the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the helper. This is language of Christ himself. Benefactress and mediatrix, just mediator. So, I grew up a Roman Catholic, and those of you here who have Roman Catholic backgrounds know that in the Roman Catholic catechisms, one of the things that you learn is when you pray, you always mediate your prayers through Mary to Jesus. And you say to Mary, may you, as it were, Hand over our prayers to God through Jesus. So essentially you are praying to Mary. And then Mary is the one who takes your prayers to Jesus. And then Jesus to God. So I've said all that to say. John 2, water into wine. We have no wine is the verse that they used to argue all that. that to argue that Mary has all this ability just because she on this day came to Jesus and told him they have no wine. So the fact that Jesus ended up converting the water into wine is given as evidence as evidence of her power of intercession. Because she apparently interceded for these people that they didn't have wine and Jesus at the end of it ended up making wine for them. So he had the request that Mary put in for these people. That's where the intercession is coming from. But theologically, <laughs> we know that is not true. According to 1 Timothy 2, 
5, there's one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. There's one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. But let's go back to verse 4 and we'll connect the proper teaching of the Bible about who actually is who in this equation of mediatorship and intercession. Verse 4, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. The Lord says to Mary, Woman, that is not your concern or mine. You are not the one who is getting married and rescuing people's parties is not why I am here. If I participate in this ceremony, it is only for a reason that you or the people here do not understand. I have a different purpose for being here. God has sovereignly designed that they will run out of wine that my glory may be shown, a theme that we shall see a lot in John 9. When the disciples came to the Lord and asked him, who sinned this man or his parents that he should be born blind? The Lord said to them, it's not his parents or him who sinned, but that the works of God may be seen in him, that God may be glorified in the miracle. So the signs, as John calls them, were to reveal the glory of Christ as the Son of God. And the cross was for his glorification. What you're going to see as we go through the book of John, the signs, John does not call them miracles, he calls them signs. The signs were there to reveal the glory of Christ. And then you're going to see that as you go to the end of the book of John, as the Lord is getting ready to go on the cross, it talks no more of revealing the glory of Christ, but of the glorification of Christ. God is now glorifying Christ on the cross. But between now and the cross, God is revealing the glory of Christ. So, woman, a lot of people... Uh, when you read that, it sounds like Jesus was being mean to his mother. Woman, according to the usage by Jesus, is not condescending, even though it's an unusual way of addressing someone. It's not condescending as it may sound. The Lord was not disrespecting his mother as this is the way that he addressed her on the cross. Just even at the moment of his death, he addressed her as woman. This is also the way he addressed other women, like the Samaritan woman in John 4.21, the woman caught in adultery in John 8.10, and Mary Magdalene at the tomb of John, uh, sorry, at the tomb in John 20, verse 15, the Lord says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So in none of the conversations that Jesus used the term woman, was there any sense of harshness. It was not harsh. It was, it seems, his way of addressing women, generally. However, this statement to Mary carries some kind of rebuke and correction 
this context has some rebuke and correction in it. The Lord was intending to reorient his mother so that she could deal with him not as her son, but as the son of God. Why? Because the ministry work is beginning. His work and ministry as the Messiah has begun, and she has to now forward relate to him differently. As the son of God, all flesh has to approach him in a very specific way. And this is true for Mary as it is for everybody else. Everyone has to approach Jesus the same way, and that is by faith. And realize that God is independent in all his ways. And realize Christ as the Son of God, who is God himself, is also independent in all his ways. This sign, which is a type and shadow of the new creation, cannot happen by the suggestion of man. This is what is an issue. Jesus is saying, yes, I'll make the wine, but do not think that it's happening because of your suggestion. It's happening because this is what God has purposed for the revelation of my glory. And we need to support this theology some more from the scriptures. From Luke 2. The Lord is at age 12. And he has stayed behind at the temple. And is reasoning with the elders at the temple, with the priests, the Pharisees, the scribes. And he is reasoning with much understanding. And we hear this in Luke 2, verse 48 51. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued, listen to this, And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in their heart. Okay. Uh, let me read something again from Luke 2, verses 33-35. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. We read that by Simeon. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary's mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So the Lord is not only a stumble to Israel, but he also will be a sword that would pierce her own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And as I was reading this, I'm thinking of Hebrews 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So basically what that is saying is, is Jesus Christ who does that. Amen. So what do we see? This is yet one of those moments that Mary's heart was pierced. 
I need, I need you to understand this theology. We will take the time for it. Before his ministry, Jesus had continued to be subjected to them, as we just read. But now he has to do his work as the son of God. And all men now have to be subject to him. For Mary, it is time to lose her son. It's time to lose her son. It's time for her to lose her son that she may embrace him as her savior. You see the movement? Because the work of God has begun. Mary has to forget at this time moving forward. No more sippy cups. No more diaper changes. No diaper bags. We are entering the work of salvation. We are now stepping on holy ground. And Mary, just like everybody, requires a reorientation of her thoughts and expectations of what the Messiah is supposed to do. Once she has been reoriented in her thinking, not as the mother of the Lord, but as a disciple, she has to be converted from being a mother to a disciple. And when she has been converted to a disciple, she quickly submits and she says, whatever he says to you, do it. She has already changed. There's a transition there. Mary is no more the mother of Jesus. Mary is now a disciple of Jesus. By this statement, she surrenders her authority over to her son and advises the servants to similarly submit. Whatever he says to you, you do it. And it sounds like even the servants here knew her position within the family that they would listen to what she would suggest to them. And it's even our own message today that whatever he, the Christ, says to you, you do it. And this is a statement of faith and repentance from her all earlier position and when that repentance has happened, the Lord always honors it. So the Lord honors her repentance. And the Lord was not unmindful of her request and the situation at hand. But it had to be addressed in the proper context. And this was a hard teaching and an unlearning moment. When we encounter the true Jesus, there's always going to be a painful unlearning moment and a learning moment. People have heard about Jesus, but they have not encountered the true Jesus. Because when you encounter the true Jesus, you realize that a lot of the expectations that you have of Jesus are false. So you have to unlearn those things that you may learn the true Jesus and then come in true faith and repentance. So listen to what the Lord said to Mary. My hour has not yet come. This is something that is important that we can't just ignore. The Lord says something that is peculiar here. 
He is told about the wine that has run out, and yet he talks about his hour. And the Lord has this pattern. And if you were humanly speaking, you'd say, uh, that's an ADD, attention deficit. We see this with Nicodemus in John 3. The Lord seems to always, like he's answering a different question. No, he's not answering a different question. He is reorienting the thinking of the people that they may really understand who he is and what he's about. So he says, my hour has not yet come. It is not yet time for me to act. What is that hour? What is that time? Very important. In John 6, sorry, in John 7, verses 6, 8, and 30, the Lord said to his brothers who wanted him to show himself to the public, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. You go up to this feast, I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And in John 7, 30, he says, therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And in John 8:20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. But we see that as soon as the cross is in sight, as, so- as soon as the cross is in the horizon, the Lord says in John 12, 23, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Also in John 12, 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And in John 17, 1, Jesus spoke to these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. So what was the hour? The hour of Christ's true glory was his appointment with the cross. He came to die and he knew it. So in speaking to Mary about the hour, he is redirecting her thoughts to his chief mission. His messianic function. So right from the first miracle... The Lord is already looking to the cross because this is the hour and purpose for which he came to be glorified in taking God's judgment on behalf of his people and the removal of their sins. And even to you and I today, the glory of Jesus is not in keeping our party going with his miracles. Rather, the cross is the main concern of the Lord. And if we have to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to honor and talk about his work on the cross. And in Revelation 2, 26, the letter to the church at Thyatira, he says, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. It's about Christ's works. It's keeping the works of Christ, teaching the works of Christ, believing in the works of Christ. John 2, verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of the purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. 
that is not saying that the water pots had 20 to 30 gallons each. Containing here is used to mean that they had the capacity to carry that much water when they were full. Okay? So uh, we have a lot of water in there. And it's very important for us to know that the Jews really were big on these purification rites. So much that in Mark 7, 1 to 5, we hear of the Pharisees. They, they came and gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ and they were trying to cause trouble and asking why they were not observing the traditions of the elders. They asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? So the washing of hands is something that is so big, and that is why they have to have this much water uh, at this place. So if they had this many people, as I said, that would explain why they ran out of the water. Okay? So here the command. We are going to move a little bit fast. John 2, 7. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, so they filled them up to the brim. There were two things that were necessary for this miracle. The wine had to run out, and secondly, the water pots had to be empty. If the water pots are not empty and the wine does not run out, then this miracle cannot be seen. Yes, there's human responsibility here. Human responsibility drank all the wine, but it was by the Lord's divine sovereignty that every detail of the wedding came out this way. We can't miss God's sovereignty in this miracle. He made sure that there would be enough people and enough drinkers to drink all the wine that the Lord may reveal his glory. And even more importantly, the Lord was not reacting to the need. Rather, the need arose because the Lord purposed to be glorified by it. And so the water pots were filled to the brim. And these are things that you can just read by and not understand what that is saying. Why would the Holy Spirit say, and the water pots were filled. Why, why tell us they were filled to the brim? If they are filled to the brim, what that is saying is there is no more addition to the contents. It's talking to the completeness of the work that Christ is about to do. If the Lord has to perform a work, it is done to its fullness to the brim. And not to half full or half empty, as Sister Becker will have it. So in John 2, verse 8, Jesus says, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. There are three command, command, commands that are given there. The first command is fill the pots. The second command is draw some out. And the third command is take it to the head waiter. The head waiter was the master of ceremony. He was in charge of the food supplies. And when the servants drew some, it was already wine. 
and the Lord commanded that it be given to the head waiter. He was the master of the banquet. But of course, the head waiter, we are told, did not know the origin of the wine that he tasted. His testimony was, this is very good wine. So in verse 9 to 10, we are told, when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, which means they've gotten drunk, then he served the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So the typical ordering here in the serving of drinks would be the good wine first, when people's palates were still sharp and sensitive to things that are good. And once they got drunk, of course, you can bring them the very diluted stuff. Okay? When they have no more discernment. So, what do we see here? This couple, I believe, was poor. And the Lord not only saved them from embarrassment, but he also gives them an asset to the beginning of their marriage. Because if they have so much wine, they can sell it afterwards. They, did not, they could not drink that much wine. And if it was good, it means people were getting drunk even faster. If it was good, people were getting drunk even faster. This was so much wine that this family had enough wine to sell for a number of months or years. Okay. But there's more. Why did the Lord choose this to be the first miracle that would be done. I talked about the element of this being a type of the marriage to the church. Christ is the bridegroom of the church, but there is more to this. In Matthew 9, 14 to 17, this is what we are told. This is what will work our conclusion. So we should be done today. Matthew 9, 14 to 17. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. This is the explanation. Wineskins were bags made of skin or leather. Animal skin, not human skin. Of animal skin or leather for storing wine. And as the new wine fermented and expanded, when it's fermenting, it releases carbon dioxide gas. And that needs somewhere to go. And now if you have a wine skin, it has to be able to stretch. If it doesn't stretch, it's going to burst the whole thing. Okay? So... Putting new or unfermented wine in old wineskins 
which had already been stretched, would result in the bursting of the wineskins. So the meaning of the saying new wine into new, into new wineskins is that the presence and teaching of Jesus was something new and signaled the passing of the old. It could not be confined within the old religion of Judaism, but involved the inauguration and consummation of the new kingdom of God. So the old wine and the old wineskin is the old covenant, is the law of Moses. And it's saying it cannot serve and it cannot be mixed with the new wine of the new covenant of grace through faith. The one who holds to the law of Moses as still binding on the church cannot fairly read what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that if you do that, you are putting new wine into old wine skins and they are opposed to his understanding. The new wine still needs to ferment. Therefore, it has to be put in a new vessel and not in the old. If you put, in, if you put it in the old, you lose both the wine and the vessel. So what is that saying? It's saying there's no salvation when you mix the old and the new. So the law of Moses is not binding on the conscience of the Christian because the Christian is served under a different covenant. It is the new wine of Christ, the new wine of the new creation, and not the old creation that brings life. So this miracle sign was the beginning of the new creation, the removal of the old wine, and the coming of the new. This is just very important for us to understand. But also, wine was for joy and gladness, was for celebration of the work of God in the new creation. In the new kingdom, there shall be an abundance of joy and gladness. And it points to the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ has abundantly supplied for the needs of his people in the removal of their sins and their justification. And in closing, wow, we're actually closing. John 2, verse 11, and that will be our last verse. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. These signs happened in Cana of Galilee and John used this location to open and close this story. So it's one technique also where he, he wants you to pay attention to what is being said. He begins with a place and then he closes with the place. So that's one complete story by itself. So he's coming to the end of this story. So he closes that. The signs according to John were not to their own end. They were not ultimately for helping the situation at hand. The signs, the miracle, were not for helping this situation. It was not. Rather, they had a more significant purpose, and he says by them, by this beginning of his signs, Jesus manifested his glory. 
So what was point number one for the miracles? They were not primarily for those who benefited from them. Rather, they were for the manifestation or revelation of the glory of Jesus. And secondly, their purpose was for working faith in his disciples. So whether the miracles were performed on someone directly or they were there when a miracle was performed on someone, the chief end was to reveal who Christ was and for them to believe. So John has shown us in both chapters 1 and 2 that Jesus is both God and man. He is rabbi and the king of Israel. And yet he does the work of creation, turning water into wine. So what do we see? We see that the apostle... Now, this is very interesting. This is a very interesting aspect of what happened here on this day. The, the apostle does not tell us about the faith of the servants and the master of the ceremony. He does not. He does not tell us about the faith of the servants and the master of the ceremony, whether they believed or not. He tells us rather that his disciples, his disciples, the ones who had just came to him, saw his glory and believed in him. That is, they put their faith in him. That's glorious. The master of ceremony may have tasted the great wine, but still he did not participate in the salvation in which this miracle anticipated. So how do we know? We are told that he did not know where the wine had come from. And that means he did not know that Jesus, the Lord of glory, was among them. So he could not believe in him. How could he believe in him whom he does not know? And this is in keeping with what John the Baptist has said in John 126. This is what he said. I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. They were standing among them, one whom they did not know, and he went away from among them with his salvation. The Lord was not revealed to them, and yet they just kept on drinking and partying. This is election and sovereignty. Where do we get sovereignty and election? It's in the text. <laughs> not all will see the glory of Christ. Not all will believe in Christ even if they taste the goodness of his wine. Because it is only for whom salvation is intended. It was true then and it is true now. And this is why the Lord Jesus Christ would say in Luke 10, 21 to 22, which happens to be one of my very favorite verses. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for, it's, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal. The things of Christ have to be revealed to you, 
or else you shall remain blind to them forever. And you can see as many miracles. But as long as the Lord do not convert the miracles to faith, you will never believe. You will never believe. There's much to learn from this story. But let us not miss this point. That the Lord of glory is the only one who is able to remove your shame away from you. And he has removed our sin and has changed the fouled water that was in our water pots into the joy and gladness of his righteousness. And yet he did all this not because we told him to, but that as the sovereign Lord, he was pleased to, that his glory may be made manifest. That we may believe in him. That's the point. That's the reason why we continue to teach the gospel. It's just for you to believe. Nothing else. It's not for you to get a better job. It's not for you to be a better wife, a better husband, a better worker. If that happens, it's only because of what has already happened. The purpose of us preaching the gospel is so that your faith in Christ may increase. That you may believe upon him and be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word this morning. I know this is a lot of teaching, but this is very little teaching because we can never exhaust the teaching of Christ. But we thank you for what word you have given us to understand. That Christ is the Lord of glory. That Christ is the one who turns the fouled water into wine, into righteousness, into everlasting life, into the light that cannot be extinguished. And Lord, we know that this wine, even though many test, they still do not know where it came from. There are many who say they believe and yet still do not know that it's Christ who has done the work. Yet they drink the wine. And by your goodness, Lord, you bring your people, even those who are ignorant, you bring them to yourself. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, may you multiply this understanding. May you put it together with whatever little your people know about you. That they may step by step and day by day continue to march up on the ladder all the way to heaven. To march on that ladder that is Jesus Christ. Our Lord, we pray and thank you for your people. And we ask for your blessing upon them as they go out. May you guard their hearts from the evil one. And Lord, may keep our children, these ones that you have given us. May you give us all the grace, Lord, uh, to lead them uh, in the correct paths of righteousness. Our Lord, we pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.